Amen. You remember when you believed that? Remember when you were young in your faith, kind of like this morning when the young ladies sang, and you believed that God was big enough? You didn't know what you were going to face and how big it was going to be, but God was going to be big enough to handle it. Imagine what those little guys could do if they just never forgot that. I think they probably turned this world up on its ear if they never forgot that God's going to be big enough. And what a reminder tonight in the world we're living in, our God's big enough. Amen. He was big enough for the Red Sea. He was big enough for Goliath. He was big enough for the lion's den. He was big enough for the fiery furnace, and he's still big enough. He's big enough for your gas bill. All right, let's quit panicking. Let's quit being afraid. He's big enough for that. He's big enough for your retirement that's almost gone in the stock market. He's big enough to handle it. And boy, let's just trust God like those kids believe they can trust God. Amen. Good singing tonight, showcasing our young people here at Central Baptist Church. What a blessing it is. Future's bright. Amen. If they'll never forget that, the future's bright here at our church. Good to see you back tonight. And what a wonderful service we had here this morning. The Lord moved. Uh, the Lord spoke through his messenger, through his word this morning. I pray you did the Lord's will. And if you didn't this morning, God's been gracious enough to allow us to come back tonight. Now, no promises that he's going to come back before, that he's not going to come back before the service is over, okay? Uh, but if he doesn't, you're going to have an opportunity uh, to make sure you're right with God when you leave here tonight. Appreciate Brother Treadway coming. And been a good friend to me, met him through the grapevine years ago. It's always been a blessing, a good source of counsel and encouragement. And uh, I'll tell you what I appreciate about Brother Treadway. Um, when we preach, we preach truth, and we preach truth in love. Uh, sometimes we have heavy dose of truth without love, and that can be dangerous. Sometimes we have a heavy dose of love without truth, and that's just as dangerous, by the way. Uh, you try to find people that are going to feed your people. Uh, led by the Spirit of God with both truth and love. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's hard to find that. And sometimes as a pastor, it's hard to do that. Sometimes we get in balance as well. And you appreciate people that stand behind this pulpit, particularly on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, to share both truth and love. And I'm thankful Brother Treadway has a great balance with that and appreciate him very much. He's going to come preach for us again tonight, Brother Treadway. to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah chapter number 29, give you what the Lord's laid upon our heart and hopefully be a help to you this evening. Uh, thank you so much for your kind remarks and, and uh, your hospitality. Thank you, Pastor and uh, uh, Brother, uh, Miss Sister Leslie and, and Miley for the great lunch and the fellowship and and uh, just appreciate your pastor and his family. Thank God for them and excited about what God's doing here at Central and how he's working. And uh, appreciate those that inquired about our ministry. And uh, if you want a, uh, if you don't get our monthly newsletter and you want that, please see my wife and give her an address. We'll mail that from Operation Go Monthly. I do have some copies of July's newsletter if you would like one tonight. And uh, be more than glad to give you that. And that just kind of tells you everything that's going on. And I mentioned this morning, I, I mentioned it right the first time, and then I think my, I got it wrong, but uh, uh, we've got a lot of foreign trips coming up between now and February. I do. My wife will be with me on some of them. And if you just pray that the Lord would uh, bless those, we'll be meeting with hundreds and hundreds of pastors and all of them and uh, trying to, national pastors, trying to encourage them, give them the materials they need. And uh, just I spend a lot of my time pastoring pastors. And so pray that the Lord give me wisdom. I don't know how I wound up doing that. I felt like a novice every year of my life pastoring and definitely don't feel qualified to help others. But 
Say, preacher, why do you do it? Because this is what I know God put me in, and I know he wouldn't have put me there if he ain't going to give me the ability to do it, and that's what I'm trusting in. And God's been so gracious and uh, been so gracious to my family. I was thinking as they were singing that song, just looking in the last two years when I stepped down from pastoring, I didn't know how we were going to make it, how we were going to survive, where the money was coming from, and God has met every need. He's been extremely faithful to me and my family, and I sure want to thank him for that. So thank you for the opportunity to be here, and I just ask you pray for our ministry church. Thank you for your monthly support. It means a lot. It's needed. I spend about, when, when all this gets transferred and everything, about half of my Sundays and Wednesdays in a year is spent overseas, and so I, I need support to, to make sure that I can pay my bills and other things, and thank you for your monthly support. Still very low, so pray the Lord would raise that up. And, uh, but God's been gracious. I do not take a salary from Operation Go, and so I've got to raise that support. But, and I also raise money for the plane tickets and other things when I go on these trips. And so, so far through the year, all the plane tickets are covered except for India. I've got about $2,100 it'll take me to buy the ticket to go to India and meet with our 36 directors and preachers. And just that's the only part of the ministry I don't have under my hands yet. And I'll be going to India to get that before I take over in January. So if you'd pray the Lord to provide that, uh, the trip to El Salvador, the Dominican, Papua New Guinea, all those others are took care of. And I, I magnify the Lord for his goodness. Jeremiah chapter number 29 and a very familiar passage of Scripture as far as one verse. But I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 and then draw some truths tonight out of this passage. So stay with me. It's going to sound like a Sunday school lesson to begin with. But I promise you I'll get into the message and, um, and uh, pray that the Lord help us tonight. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders which were carried away captives unto the priests and to the prophets. And all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. After that, Jeconiah, the king, and the queen, and the eunuchs, the princes of Judah, and Jerusalem, and the carpenters, and the smiths were departed from Jerusalem. By the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gomera, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent unto Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. In verse number 10, notice what he said, For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. If you know Jeremiah 29 at all, you probably know it because of one particular verse. It's a verse that's given hope. It's a verse that's given comfort to many people. It's been sung. It's been memorized. It's been quoted. It's been repeated in prayer. It's been cross-stitched and hung in kitchens and walls across the country so it won't be forgotten. And I'm referring to the next verse, verse 11 of Jeremiah 29. For I know the thoughts, God said, that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. What a great verse, amen? 
But every verse in the Bible has a context. And that's true of this one also. And, if, and so when you know something about this chapter, you discover some profound insights on how God deals with his children, especially when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances and it don't seem like they're going to change anytime soon. And since that reality applies to all of us some of the time and to some of us all the time, I think we ought to look at that a little closer. And just to kind of make sure we're on the same page, the little background I think is needed in the year 597 B.C., a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, led the army of the Babylonians to the gates of Jerusalem. They made quick work of the army of Judah. They captured the city and they captured the king, a wicked man named Jehoiakim, and they bound him in bronze shackles and they took him away to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar looted the temple that was built by Solomon, taking from it articles of silver and gold. And Jehoiakim was replaced by Jehoiachin, and he reigned only three months. And Nebuchadnezzar had him brought to Babylon also along with more articles from the temple. And then around 10,000 people were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in that deportation. 2 Kings 24 says he took the artisans, the craftsmen, the royal officials, and the leading men of the land, and only the poorest of the people were left behind. Meanwhile, a man by the name of Zedekiah becomes king in Jerusalem, and he's a puppet king put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar, and he reigns 11 more years until Nebuchadnezzar decides to deal with the Jews once and for all. And in 588 B.C., he sets up a siege against Jerusalem. That siege lasts two years, and the famine spreads through the city. And finally, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem falls, and not only does it fall, but this time he destroys everything. He tears down the city walls, he burns the temple, he burns every other important building, he leaves the city in ruins, he takes whatever he wants and destroys everything else. He captures King Zedekiah, he kills Zedekiah's sons in front of him, pokes out his eyes, and then marches Zedekiah in bronze shackles to Babylon. Now, if you studied history, you know the Babylonians were not a nice people. They were the most powerful nation on the earth during this time, and their army was ruthless, and they would pile skulls in front of the city plazas, a warning to anyone not to rebel against them. And there were three deportations, but this letter that we're looking at in chapter 29 is, is in the second one. That's the background of Jeremiah 29. There's one other part in all this that we need to consider. Why, why did it happen? Why that was Israel being captured by the Babylonians? Well, we can say it simply. It's because the people of Judah had turned away from the Lord. They ignored his word. They forgot his promises. They worshiped idols. They took lightly their holy calling. They willingly followed after evil. They took advantage of the poor and the weak. They trafficked in violence and they acted as if God was not paying attention to anything they were doing. And that was their ultimate mistake. For generations, people had turned away from the Lord. But to make matters worse, they had learned nothing of the sad experience of the northern ten tribes that we call Israel once they split and they were taken by the Assyrians in 722 and although it could be argued that the northern tribes went further into idolatry I believe Judah's sin was greater because the people saw what happened to Israel and they forgot God anyway God sent Judah prophets whom they ignored and sometimes killed 
God gave them good kings. And when they had good kings, they followed the Lord. And when they had bad kings, they turned back to their evil ways. And finally the time came when God said, enough is enough. And he raised up Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of judgment against his own people. And even though Nebuchadnezzar don't have a clue, he's doing God's will. This pagan king serves God's purposes by attacking Jerusalem, destroying the temple, ransacking the city, taking thousands of Jews into captivity, and all of that lies in Jeremiah 29. It's a pivotal, pivotal chapter if we want to understand how God deals with his people. And I think we can summarize it this way. God called his people to holiness. They, and by the way, God still calls his people to holiness. They ignored his call and they went their own way. God warned them over and over again of impending and coming judgment. He sent prophet after prophet. The people paid no heed. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar who attacked Jerusalem and destroyed it. And now Jews end up in Babylon and God said you're going to be there for 70 years. Doesn't sound too pleasant. Doesn't sound too promising. Doesn't sound something like you and I would want to be a part of, but may I say that just like the Jews and just like the people in that day, ever since the beginning of creation, in fact, all the way back to Adam and Eve, there's always been someone somewhere unhappy with their position in the universe. Discontentment caused Satan to rebel against the Lord. A full one-third of the angels joined with him in his attempt to overthrow the throne. And for that rebellion, God judged them. And ever since that day, he has been known as Satan and the devil. And he's been the enemy of God and all his works. It was discontentment that made him do it. And discontentment, in my opinion, has been one of Satan's greatest weapons ever since. His earliest triumph came in the Garden of Eden when he sold seeds of discontentment in Eve's unsuspecting heart. By misquoting the Lord, he made Eve think that somehow God was trying to cheat her, to keep her down, to keep her from becoming like God. So Eve takes the fruit and eats of it. She gives it to Adam and he eats of it. Sin enters the human bloodstream and the seeds of discontentment brought forth the bitter harvest of disobedience, which led to the loss of paradise and the entrance of evil into the world as we know it. And ever since then, we've been an unhappy race. After Eden, we've never been fully satisfied with anything on earth. And we're still not satisfied thousands of years later, if we're honest, church. We always want something different. What do you mean? If we're young, we want to be older. Preacher, that's not true. Ask any little kid, how old are you? Four and a half. Five and three quarters. Ask a 12-year-old. I'm almost 13 and they're 11 and a half months away from it. If we're old, how old are you, 29 and holding? How long have you been holding? None of your business. If it's old, we want something new. If it's new, we want something newer or we want it vintage and new. If it's small, we want something bigger. If it's big, we want something really big. If we have $100, we want $200. If we have $200, we want $500. If we have an apartment, we want a condo. If we have a condo, we want a house. If we have a house, we want a bigger house or a newer house or a nicer house. Or maybe we want to scale down and live in an apartment again. 
We have a job, we dream of a better job, a bigger job, a closer job, with a bigger office, a better boss, better benefits, more challenge, bigger opportunity, nicer people to work for, and more vacation time. If we're single, we dream of being married. And if we're married, I'll let you finish that one. Now, what's, we're laughing because if we're honest tonight, none of that is unusual in any way. We were born discontented, and some of us stay that way forever. And I would venture to say a certain amount of discontentment can be good for the soul. It's not wrong to have dreams about what the future might hold. The hope of something better drives us forward and keeps us working and inventing and striving and creating and innovating. We certainly need some spiritual discontentment with our lives and the way we live. But there is a discontentment that leads in a wrong direction and it it expresses itself in at least one of the five ways Envy, if you you get discontented, it'll start out with envy. That's the inability to rejoice at other people's success. That'll lead to uncontrolled greed or ambition, the desire to win at all costs, no matter what it takes or who gets trampled in the process. That'll form a critical spirit, the tendency to make negative, hurtful, cutting remarks about others. That'll lead to a complaining spirit of bitterness, the disposition to make excuses and blame others or bad circumstances for our problems, refusing to take personal responsibility, the inability to be thankful for what we already have. That'll lead to outbursts of anger, angry words spoken because our expectations are not met. The discontented person looks around and says, I deserve something better than this because they're never happy. And they're never satisfied. And they drag others into the swamp with them. No wonder one man declared contentment makes a poor man rich and discontentment makes a rich man poor. Discontentment is the cancer of the soul. It eats away our joy. It corrodes our happiness. It destroys our outlook on life. It produces a terminal illness of the soul so that everything looks negative to us. We cannot be happy because we will not be happy. We cannot be satisfied because we will not be satisfied. And such a person is going to be miserable today, miserable tomorrow, miserable forever if they don't fix it. As I travel the country, Pastor Andrews, what I'm seeing is discontentment, unfortunately, not as just crept all over the world. It's in our churches. The people that should be the happiest, are you glad tonight that You didn't have a heart pounding this morning and sweat breaking out on your brow when I talked about how hell bad would be. Aren't you glad you can lay your pillow on your head tonight and know you're saved and not going to hell? Aren't you glad that you know Jesus Christ and how this is? We ought to be the most happiest people in the world, and yet we're discontented and miserable. It's where we're at. How do we overcome that condition? I believe the answer lies with good theology. Good theology will save your soul. I don't mean in salvation from hell. I mean it'll help you in the darkest times. We say we believe theology and we believe doctrine, but good theology, listen, God is good. Do you believe that? And I'll say that in churches. They'll say all the time. Someone's our turn. I'll say all the time. 
And they'll say, God is good. Someone's already trained them in that. We know that. But you let the flat tire take place. Let the kid get sick. My, our, our oldest daughter texts this morning. We have no, no insurance for her. And, and, and while we were in Sunday school this morning, our 20-year-old daughter, she was in an accident a few weeks ago. And I would say that uh, where she got hit with the airbag, it loosened a cap, a feeling. And, and, and she texted her mama during Sunday school and said, hey, our daughter, little girl, she had to stay home with her. That's why she was texting. She wasn't skipping church because daddy and mama were gone. And, and uh, Anna threw up all night with a migraine. And so she was staying home with her. And, and she texted and said, I, I broke, uh, the, the caps come off. And, and she's got a sharp place on the tooth. And she was upset and worried. She said, we don't have insurance, don't have the money to fix it. What are we going to do? I'm saying good theology in my heart. Brother Jeremiah, as I was sitting in Sunday school this morning, I had to remind myself, God is good, even with a chipped tooth and no insurance and not knowing where that's coming from. And God is good. Uh, when the tires flatten, God is good. When the accident occurs, good theology will keep you sane and keep you stable. Not only is God good, God is faithful. God is forgiving. God is merciful. Those just ain't statements that we say. Our God is a big God. We just heard what a great, powerful God is and how big our God is. That kind of theology will settle you when everything's crumbling in around you. Jeremiah 29, I believe, contains some amazingly helpful insights about discontentment, even though the word itself is not used. Let me give you that, and I'll be through. Number one, and this ain't alliterated, but it's still good, all right? Number one, you are where you are because God wants you there. Do you remember the background of Jeremiah 29? I just gave you the history. It's a letter from the prophet Jeremiah in Jerusalem to the Jewish exiles in faraway Babylon. These exiles feel abandoned. They feel rejected, unloved, discouraged, forgotten. They, they said, how can we ever sing the songs of Zion while living in a pagan land? How can we ever find hope knowing that it was their own foolish choices that put them in Babylon? How could they find courage to go on when God had said you're going to be in exile for 70 years? You know what I'm seeing in our day? Pastor mentioned it. Gas prices are high. And everyone's shouting because they're under $4. I remind you, they're still very high. And go to Michigan, they're a dollar higher than what you're paying. <laughs> My gas bill the last two months has been over $1,200, and we consolidate trips. We don't take a trip unless it's absolutely necessary. We don't just run to the store. I say, if the kid says, I got to have this, I say, you wait till I got to go here. And the other one says, I got to do this. We consolidate. I'm still paying over $1,200 when I was paying around uh, $600 to $600 a month on fuel and, and just with ministry and traveling and all the other things. And, and we see the price of gas. We see what's going on in our nation. We see what's going on with politics in the White House and, and things that we don't like. And, and, and I see so many bumper stickers that said, don't blame me. I didn't vote for him and all these things. And I get all that. But can I remind you that if we're not careful, we'll take on the mentality and the disposition of the lost world. This world's not my home. I'm a pilgrim. I'm passing through. I'm to be an ambassador. I'm to be, I've got a higher calling. I'm headed to a country where I am a citizen. 
This is not where I'm going to have permanent residence. And God is saying to these Jews, hey, listen, you're here because I want you here. I know you're here. And may I say, church, where we're at today, where God's got the church, where God has a church in Hattiesburg, where God's got the church all over the world, it's not caught God by surprise. It's not caught him off guard. He's not sucking on Rolaids and chewing tongues trying to figure out what's going on. Our God knows where we're at. And so many Christians say, well, preacher, we're here because God's judging America. Okay, maybe he is. I wouldn't even argue that point. Doesn't change my responsibility. God says to these Jews, you will be in exile for 40 years. And to all the concerns about how they're going to find hope, how are they going to make it? God answers that in verse number four. Look at it. I carried you into Babylon. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 4. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Did you see that? Here's one of the clear statements of God's sovereignty in the Bible. Don't be afraid of that word. And although the hated Babylonians had captured them, behind the pagan army stands God himself. God said, I did it. Don't blame the Babylonians. They were merely instruments to do my will. You sinned. And you brought this judgment on yourself. But I'm the one that carried you into Babylon. As a matter of fact, I believe it is in, a, in chapter 27 and verse number 6. Watch what God calls Nebuchadnezzar. And now have I given all these lands in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Did y'all catch that? God says Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's doing this of his own free will. He thinks he's doing this because God says that's my servant he's doing what I'm instructing him to do whether he realizes it or not now listen that doesn't in any way cancel human choice and the very real consequences of our sin. It merely points out that things are not always as they seem on the surface. The exiles had vivid memories of the shock, the pain, and the shame of being rich from their homeland, being carried away to Babylon. God says there's more going on here than you know. I warned you this would happen. You ignored me. And now what I said has come to pass. And if you want to blame anyone, blame yourself. Don't blame Nebuchadnezzar. Don't blame the Babylonians. They were acting on my command though they did not realize it Solomon said that a man's heart devises his way but it's the Lord that directeth his steps the Jews never planned to end up in Babylon in fact that was the last place they ever intended to to be or to go but the Lord determined that their destination for the next 70 years was going to be in Babylon is that any consolation well it all depends tonight on what you believe about God if you don't believe God involves himself in the affairs of life, then it won't matter because you won't see the hand at work or his hand at work even in the darkest moments. But if you believe God is a God of the details, then it makes all the difference in the world to know that he takes personal responsibility for allowing certain things to happen that we regard as catastrophes. I have a statement I've said for years. I've taught my people, God either authors... Or allows it in our life. There is no third category. He either caused it or he allowed it. You understand what I'm saying? That's huge because many of us want to create a third category. 
Something like really bad things happen for no reason at all. There is no such category. If you're saved tonight, God's either authored what you're going through and what the church is going through as, 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 as in the world today with what we're facing. I read an article this afternoon. It was absolutely heartrending. I try not to do that on Sunday, but something popped up and it was from a new source. I normally don't even like to read anyway. But I, I read the article because I was interested in how they were framing the context. And I'm telling you, this world is doing everything it can to make Christians out that believe Jesus saves, that believe Jesus is the only answer, that somehow we're extremists, that somehow we're a problem. We're a scourge of society. This writer used this words. We're the scourge of society believing that Jesus saves and believing that this country was a nation founded on Christian principles. I'm telling you, listen, this world world does not have good views of you and I. And listen, when we look at this in our day, if we're not careful, we'll get discontented. You are where you are right now because God wants you there. You may be happy about your circum current circumstances. You may be miserable. Most likely you're somewhere in between. It doesn't matter. You are where you are at this moment because God wants you there. Preacher, how can you say that so emphatically? Because if God wanted you somewhere else, you would be somewhere else. And when he wants you somewhere else, that's where you'll be. If God be God, is that not true tonight, church? So when God says, and I hear so many Christians and, and they're complaining about the inflation, they're complaining, the pastor said it perfectly before I got up, we're complaining about everything going on and Christians, well, don't blame me and it's not my fault. I'm telling you, we are here today in society because that's exactly where God wants us. And God says to them, I carried you to Babylon. I would say America's in Babylon. Would you not agree? And he wants his children to know that though they've sinned grievously, he's not forgot them. He carried them to Babylon, partly as judgment, partly as a sign of his mercy. They certainly understood the judgment part. They're going to understand the mercy part later. Sometimes the most we can say is, I know I'm here because God wants me here. I don't know why, but I know I'm not here by chance. For the last two years, I can't tell you how many times that theology is what's got me through. I'm here because that's where God wants me it's a great advance in the life of faith to be able to say that much even if you can't say anything else so you're here we're here in this day and time because this is where God wants us number two you're called to make the most of your present circumstances we are where we are because that's where God wants us now here's where we fail in this thing of contentment we're called to make the most of the circumstances we're in right now. Verses 5 and 6 gives us God's specific directions to the exiles in Babylon. And it was not what they expected to hear. They wanted God to say something like this to them. My children, I know you don't like living in Babylon. So I have some very good news. Do you remember what I did for Moses and your ancestors? Well, hang on because help's on the way. But that's not what God said to this group. His advice is quite different. God says you're going to be here a long time, 70 years to be exact. And since you won't be coming home early, it's important for you to make the most out of the situation you're in. 
Watch what he says in verse number five. Build houses. Dwell in them. That means settle down. Plant gardens. Eat the fruit of them. Eat what they produce. Verse six, he says, marry, have sons and daughters. Let your children get married and have children. Increase in number. Do not decrease. You know how many Christians I meet across the country that are ten str- older folks instructing the younger folks? Don't have kids in this generation. Don't, you don't want to raise a kid in this wicked society. That goes against the very thing God said. We should not fear how, what society we raise our children in or, or what the circumstances are. Our God is big enough to protect our kids in the dark times and the darkest days with whatever may be going on and God says to them have children don't increase decrease in number increase to borrow a familiar phrase God's command is simple bloom where you are planted you may not like where you are, but that doesn't matter. I've planted you in Babylon. Transplanted would be more like it. I want you to go ahead. I want you to put roots down, buy some land, build a nice home, plant some gardens, go into business, build a community. In every hard situation, we have to face the same question. Are we going to complain? Are we going to get busy? Without me knowing your thing till I got here and the messages God laid on my heart... Does that not line up with the theme? Well, we're going to do more when we get the right guy in office. The right guy in office ain't going to fix this country. It's a spiritual problem. It's a sin problem. Judgment must begin, God said, at the house of God. And I, I'm all for, listen, I preach more encouraging than probably any other message than I preach when I preach like this. I do my best to be kind and nice. But at the end of the day, you want to know why we're in the state we're in? Because churches drop the ball. We quit. We backed up. We started becoming more like the world instead of saying, this is where we're standing. You either come to where we're at, but we're not going to where you are. We've compromised. We've become carnal. We've become worldly. We've become more concerned with our money and our job and our status and we ought to listen God said to us listen we're here if this is judgment it's because the church let up we got concerned with what's going on at the church instead of knocking doors and winning souls and getting busy and doing what I preached this morning so we're in a mess and I talk to Christians all across the country. They say, well, we're, I, I talked to a pastor. And he said, well, I'm part of a, I couldn't understand him. I won't tell you where I was. And he said, well, and I, I thought he was saying he's a pepper. And I'm keeping thinking, okay, what, what, what is this terminology for? He was saying he was a prepper, a pastor of an independent Baptist church. And after about three tries, I said, you're a pepper. He said, no, a prepper. He said, I'm a doomsday prepper. He said, I've got men in my church and we're part of a group and we've got a place in a state and we've got arms and when this thing goes bad, we're going to fight and we're going to, listen, that's not what God called the church to do. God says, I want you to settle down. When you and I face hard situations, are we going to complain or are we going to get busy? You're in Babylon. We're in Babylon in 2022 as a church. What are we going to do? 
And God says to them, you're in Babylon now, make the best of it, don't complain, don't mope, don't spend your days pining away for Jerusalem. So many churches are looking backwards. Boy, if we could just have the old days, if we could just have the glory days, if it could just be like when Pastor so-and-so was here, if it could be just like when this camp meeting was still running, if it could just be like when the independent movement was, it's not. But what about now? Make the most now. What can we do now? I don't know what the old days were, but I know what God wants to do now, and we have an opportunity to change this world. We're not going to do it by looking back. No man's fit for the kingdom of God who taking all the plow looks back. we got to get busy now. That's what the Lord's telling them in Babylon. Don't, don't complain. Don't moan. Don't wish for what it is. You're going to be here for 70 years. I put you in Babylon for a reason. Don't waste a single moment looking back on what it used to be. Use your energies to make life better now. Church, I love this place. I pray for your pastor. Pray for this church. He's been here a couple years. Can I tell you, some of the older members that's been here for years, quit judging or looking about what the church used to do or how they used to do it. Get on board now. Now. Well, if we could just do it, that's done, gone. Now. I pastored a church, had a great man of God, just like here. And listen, I had some people that just would not let go of the past. And until they let go, we couldn't move forward. It's not about what was done. It's about what are we doing now. Some churches have just quit. Well, we're under judgment. We're in sin. For four years, we might as well just hunker down. No, 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 no. That ain't the advice God gave these Jews. God said, get busy. I put, don't waste a single moment looking back on what used to be. Use your energy to make life better now. That's good advice, is it not? Amen. You think about the emphasis we put on stuff. We like to play the if only. What do you mean, preacher? Many Christians play the if only game. If, if only I could get married, then I'd be happy. Then, if only I could get a divorce, I'd be happy. I've had some people tell me that. That's not God's will. If only I could get a new job or a different job, I'd be happy. Boy, if only I can graduate from college, I'd be happy. If only we have children. I'm married now, but I'm not happy. But if we have children, I'd be happy. If I could just retire in Florida, I hear that a lot in Michigan, I'd be happy. If I could only make more money, I'd be happy. If we could only move to a new home, I'd be happy. If I could just get over this last hurdle, I'd be happy. Listen, you can't live in the past, but you can't live in the future either. See, the problem is not all that stuff. The problem is you. You determine your happiness and your life and your energy and the Babylon you're in right now. Why not make the most of it? Is that not the advice? The key to dealing with both your past and the future is the present. What will I do right now about what I'm having to deal with? Am I going to pine for better days? And I'm going to complain to this and that that I wasn't hugged enough or loved enough as a kid? Or am I going to take responsibility for myself and move on from right here? Number three, and I'm done. We need to come to grips with reality. 
This point follows the last one. If we're going to settle down in Babylon, if we're going to make the most out of a bad situation, we got to come to grips with reality. That may be the hardest thing for any of us to do. Sometimes the best thing that can happen is get a cold splash of reality right in the face. It might shock you when it happens, but we owe it to ourselves and those around it not to live in a fantasy land, believing that everything's always fine and dandy. Your children will be blessed if they see you making the most out of a bad situation and choice you may not want to make, decision you may not want to make, but you've got to make it. I wish I'd have learned this a lot sooner. When I stepped down from pastoring, I immediately obeyed what God told me to do, but I wasn't happy about it for a long time. My children suffered, my wife suffered, I suffered, and it was a blessed day of my life when I said, God, you don't just want me to do what you tell me. You want me to have the right attitude. It changed everything. Your children have be blessed if they see you making the most God told the exiles to settle down build something for themselves he told them to have children and grandchildren to increase not decrease hey listen blessed are the sons and daughters who see a mom and dad make the most out of a bad situation no matter where you got to that point God said ultimately you're here because I want you here this is where we're at so what's the bottom line? You are where you are because God wants you there. You can serve the Lord right now where you are. You can glorify the Lord right now where you are. And if you complain, church, listen to me, you're attacking the Lord, not serving Him. So the question comes down to this, do you believe in God or don't you? Do you believe God will give you what you need right now so you can serve him right where you are? There's a sense in which when you complain and dwell in discontentment, at that point you no longer believe in God. That is, on one level, you certainly do believe in God, but by your discontented complaining, you're denying the truth you claim to believe. If you can't do everything you would like to do, you can joyfully accept your situation as being from the hand of the Lord and determine, I'm moving forward. You can always pray, you can always praise, you can always sing in your heart to the Lord. You can always refresh yourself in the streams that flow forth from the heart of God. So how do we apply the truth from this passage? Bloom where you're planted. Serve the Lord right where you are. Stop moking. Don't live in the past. Don't live in the future. Let God define your life, not your earthly circumstances. Don't expect change to make you happy and never forget you're not going to live here forever. So I want to ask you. I'm done. I wanted you to consider two sentences carefully. Could you say this evening, if I'm in Jerusalem, I will serve him in Jerusalem. That's easy. Everyone wants to be in Jerusalem. That's the city of God. That's where the glory of God, that's where the seat of God, that's the easy part. But if I'm in Babylon, I will serve him in Babylon. That's true no matter where you are. You can be in Hattiesburg, you can be in Bridgeport, Michigan, Malawi, or Idaho, or Mexico, anywhere else on God's green earth and still serve the Lord. Because it's not about geography, it's about your heart. If God has put you in Babylon, serve him there. Child of God, there's a lot of advice that I don't have time to share, but did you notice what he said in verse 7? What should the attitude of Christians be to this world that's attacking us and that's put us in bondage, that's trying to take our liberties and our freedoms and making fun of us and persecuting us? Here's what God told this crowd. Are y'all in verse number seven? Seek the peace of the city. 
whether I have caused you to be carried away captives and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall you have peace. You know what God said? Don't pray for their downfall. Don't pray for evil. Pray for peace. Pray for, for God to watch over Babylon. And you know what amazing happened? I know your pastor knows his history. You know what amazing thing occurred in this instance that's never occurred in the history of Babylon before? The Babylonians started treating Israel with respect. They put them in positions of authority. They let them have their own land, which was never heard of for captives. They treated them in a way that no captives had ever been treated before or since. How do you think that happened? Because Israel realized we're here because God wants us here. We're going to make the best of, the, of a bad situation, and we're going to do it God's way. Railing against everything going on, getting angry, upset, cussing, fussing, ain't doing us a bit of good, folks. God's way will work. But it's so antithetical to the flesh that it's going to take you following the Spirit of God and the Word of God to do it. If God puts you in Babylon, serve him there. Build a house, plant a garden, start a business, have some children, have some grandchildren, settle down, enjoy life. You can serve God in Babylon just as well as you can in Jerusalem. It's a hard lesson, but it's also good news if we'll receive it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm done. I want to ask you tonight. Have you been fighting the Babylon situation God's put you in? Church, I, I'm trying to encourage you. I'm just telling you, the greatest day of your life will be just say, God, I submit to your will, whether it feels like captivity, whether it feels good, I submit, God. We're in an age that like I've never seen before. There's animosity, there is persecution on every side with God's people. How do we respond? What do we do? I think God gives us the answer. We can learn from Israel. He, there are in sample, the New Testament says. I wonder how many tonight would say, Preacher, I'm in Babylon in a situation of my life, and I needed that tonight. And I just want you to pray for me. If God dealt with your heart, why don't you stand? If God dealt with your heart, all of y'all stand, and I think that's the way you do an invitation. And if God dealt with you, why don't you come right now and just get around. Maybe you're discontented. Maybe you've been complaining, griping, carrying on, upset about some things in your life. Whether it's a small Babylon, a big Babylon, whether it applies to the day we live or to a personal situation tonight. Maybe you just need to come and say, God, help me to make the most out of this situation. Folks are still coming. Church, thank you for listening. Thank you for your kind attention. But more importantly, would you just let, well, I've, I've tried to be an encouragement to you. I've really tried to preach hard. I'm just telling you, getting upset and fighting what God is doing is only going to make you miserable. And God doesn't want you miserable. If there's someone here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I know it's Sunday night, but if you would come and talk to someone, we'd love to see you saved. You can leave here knowing you're going to heaven. Father, I pray for all the hands and the people on the altars. Thank you for the great response. God, too many times in my life, you've put me in Babylon and I've fought it and argued and complained and kicked and screamed. And God, I, I ask forgiveness even now, though I've asked forgiveness many times. Lord, I want my children, my wife, people that look to me, I want them to see a Christian, whether I'm in Jerusalem or Babylon, faithfully, fruitfully, and joyfully serving you. God, now's the time, not tomorrow, 
not looking back, but what can we do now in the Babylon we're in? Help us, Lord. May we take these principles. May you encourage your people. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the man of God you've put over him. May you bless him and his family. And God, may you do something special. I pray you meet all of the needs of this place. God, touch these on the altar now. In Jesus' name.